The best and brightest physicians choose to work at Boston Medical Center. And now it's time to hear what they're saying. This is Boston Med Talks. Here's Melanie Cole. Do I need to see a doctor or can I manage something that happens to my children at home is a question that so many people ask themselves all the time whenever an injury or illness occurs with their children. My guest today is Dr. Jack Maypole. He's a general pediatrician and director of the Comprehensive Care Program at Boston Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Dr. Maypole. So there's a lot of different things that might happen to our children falling off a swing set or, you know, cutting themselves. And parents never know whether it's something that is emergent or you call a pediatrician and find out what to do or you take care of it at home. So let's bust up a few of these and see which ones you want people to know so so that they know who to call. But first question, if you have a call into your pediatrician and you get the pediatrician or clinician on call, what do you want people to know about getting somebody who's not their regular primary care physician? Uh, that's a great question and certainly something as, as, as someone who takes on a lot of uh, phone call, meaning covering for the primary care practice, um, would uh, appreciate being put out there. And I think um, as with any time you're dealing with someone with a clinical background, if you show up in the emergency room or a walk-in urgent care clinic, or in this case on the telephone, it's really important to be mindful of a few different things and help the person on the other end of the line, someone like me, for example, understand the context and situation. You know, first of all, who are you and who is your child and what's the situation? What is the concern? And then, um, and, and thereafter, we'll follow the usual back and forth. You know, what happened? When did it begin? What are your concerns? Uh, how does the child look now? And uh, what, what is your, your sort of feeling that we can do now or what needs to be get, um, figured out in terms of does the child need to be seen? Uh, and after that, I think for parents who have kids with complicated illness or who have important things like medicine allergies, letting that information get communicated before you hang up. So if you start just from there, you're off to the races and off to a really good start. So let's start with some of the simple things that kids come up with, cuts and scrapes. And so okay. if they get one of these and the edges of a cut gape open, do they use neosporin, bacitracin? Do you like covered and moist? Do you like, oh, some people say let it air dry? What do you like and how much bleeding do we put up with before we call you guys freaked out? Yeah, well, you know, I think I'm going to back off and sort of say, first of all, who are we talking about? It's a very different question if you're describing an infant or a toddler and having to sort of fall in and scrape their knee in the dining room versus someone who had a more extensive injury. So really, um, it, we have to first step back as parents and, and caretakers of our kids and sort of say, how there's the wound, but how's the child doing? So I think with that in mind, the ones you should worry about are those that really seem to be associated with the child being uh, unconsolable. Every child uh, under at least the age of 12 tends to get teary or upset with a significant fall and, and skin injury. Uh, but if it's the usual stuff, the hugs, the kisses, the ice, the padding, and the distraction and the consolation really aren't working, then it's maybe a signal to do just a survey of how your kid's doing. Are they making sense? Are they alert? Are they conscious? Or is there anything else that may suggest a deeper injury? Okay, let's pretend you, you've done all that and, and you're reassured. And it looks like a more superficial scrape, um, which looks, you know, I've heard described as like road rash or raspberries. Um, so for that sort of thing, doing the usual uh, putting a Band-Aid or some, maybe some uh, clean gauze or a moist clean towel over it to uh, offer some, some cooling and to abate the bleeding is a good idea. 
Uh, if there's a bruise, you may want to do some ice to the area for, for maybe 10 or 15 minutes thereafter and then and constantly reassess, is the bleeding stopped and do they seem to be okay? And if, they're, if it's over a joint, are they moving that all right? Uh, when it's more extensive, if it's deeper, and like you said, if it's got a gaping aspect like a fish mouth, that might be something that needs some stitches or maybe some, some cinching shut with some skin glue and might be a reason to snap a cell phone shot of it and call your doctor's or your provider's office and see if they can help you assess it and figure it out over the phone. I love that you brought up snapping a cell phone shot of it because that's oh, something yeah. new that we can do. Mm-hmm. And and following along that theme, bumps and bruises happen to everybody. When would you say, okay, if your child has a bump or a bruise, this is when you do need to call the doctor? Yeah, great question again. So I think um, classic example is the toddler shin. So anyone age two, three, four, seven, it's pretty much 100% uh, guaranteed that I'm going to find bruises on their shins, which is a good sign that they're running and jumping and crashing into things at low speed and having those badges of honor on their legs. I think for parents who have a really excellent spider sense over their kids, uh, it's when they feel like the bruises that they see are out of scope or really seem much more exaggerated for the story of how the injury happened. Like I bumped into a door and I have, and the whole side of my arm is black and blue. That would either mean we have to go over the story again or there might be something else going on. So for parents, in the rare cases where there's a concern there may be a bleeding problem or even rarer still, something like cancer, it often goes with something more. Kids are having unexplained fevers or sweats at night. They may have pain that they can't explain. They have flu symptoms or fevers, like I said, or that there is uh, other bleeding involved where they may have bloody noses that last for more than a couple of minutes bleeding with their gums or even bleeding in their pee or their poop. So those would definitely be reasons that parents would, um, I'm sure, would not escape their notice. But if they did come across, that would merit a a check-in with their primary care doc. What about ear pain? You sometimes, as as pediatricians, do the watch and wait, and sometimes we get eardrops or sometimes a full antibiotic. When is ear pain something to go see if it's an ear infection? Well, here's here's Dr. Obvious Rides again. So it really does depend on who the kid is. It's one thing if it's an 18-year-old with ear pain versus um, a infant or toddler. So let's talk about the more commonly encountered um, ear pain in an infant or toddler or school-aged child. So assuming it's one-sided and assuming it maybe uh, happens over a day or two, uh, sometimes just even over the phone we can get some important understanding. Does a child have a history of previous ear infections? Does a child have a history of getting surgery for those kinds of things? And those would be uh, important details to share with the person you're talking to on the phone. Um, and then in, in season, or depending on what their activities are, if they're swimmers, that might help cue us to, to delineate if it's a swimmer's ear or external ear infection or a middle ear infection. But really the gold standard, now available with new tools, the, I know, a smartphone dongles that can even look at ears and send images to uh, remotely to consulting uh, providers, or a visit to clinic with direct visualization that is peeking through the otoscope at the eardrum can help us make a diagnosis of ear congestion, uh, some fluid that might be there for whatever reason, including allergy, or maybe an infection that could be viral or bacterial. And then finally, uh, the idea of treating ear infections or ear pain with antibiotics has changed a lot over the last 20 years, and we've become much less aggressive for good reasons. Most of these ear infections are either don't have any specific organism we can treat with antibiotics, or it's viral. So only some uh, are really bacterial in origin. So young age, persistent pain, high fever, 
these would be factors that would contribute to a game-time decision to treat with antibiotics. But pretty much never does that happen purely over the phone unless we have some visual data that can help us see what's going on inside that ear canal. So many of our little guys are athletes now. They're playing soccer and they're playing baseball, and they come home with an injury or a swollen ankle or a shoulder that hurts. Do we rush off to the orthopod or to our pediatrician, or do we wrap an ice and do all those things and wait and see what happens the next day? Yeah, so if we have a child who has a the question of a sprain or strain, um, let's talk about the ankle first, one of the most commonly tweaked joints. So there, if a child is has had an injury at, say, sports practice and is able to bear some weight and is walking with a mild limp, I think that's right there very reassuring uh, that it's more likely a, a, a mild muscle strain that can recover with some um, at-home supportive care like you described. Uh, if it's something where a child is unable to bear weight on a, on a twisted ankle or worse, a knee, that's something which may merit at least a check-in with the primary care practice just to at least understand and, and really be, maybe explore more deeply over the phone uh, what might be going on and if they need to be referred for imaging at an emergency room, for example, or followed up in the next 24 to 48 hours if there's a lack of improvement. If there is a question of injuries in the, um, what we call the upper girdle, the upper extremities, you know, shoulders, elbows, wrists, uh, similarly, you know, gentle ranges of motion as with the legs, never forcing a child to move uh, if beyond a, a point range if there's tenderness or, or discomfort. And just doing that kind of overall gut check assessment that parents are so good at, if, if you're just really concerned the child is not responding well to the usual care plus Motrin or Tylenol, maybe a good time to check in with their provider. So, Dr. Maypole, are there resources online that you, I mean, parents now, all we do, we go right to the internet and we look sure. up whatever it is. We see a rash on our children and we go, hmm, and we go right to the internet. Are there some websites that, you, that should be avoided that you do not want people to be looking at? Or are there websites that you feel are very good and trustworthy, like the American Academy of Pediatrics or Healthy Children or one of those? Is there something that you want parents to know about looking this stuff up? Sure. Uh, the, the short answer is absolutely. I, so I don't necessarily uh, have a campaign or a position on um, a short list of websites to avoid, but I do think there are some key qualities that might be markers or flags for parents who are shopping um, sources of information around their child's health. Um, so first of all, I'm trying to get a sense of who are who's the curator or who's the author of the website, and if it's an individual versus a, uh, a medical establishment versus um, an academic or uh, research uh, entity. I think that will help understand if there's a bias or an agenda there. Um, to be very cautious if a website espousing information has direct links to uh, marketing or hawking their own products to address a malady or an injury, I'd be very wary that there is some strong um, propensity towards bias or bad information. And so uh, it's very prudent for parents to uh, explore uh, things or share resources maybe with their provider to understand if they have a perspective, and even for them to learn, which I find in my practice is very, very helpful. There are some what we might call mainstream medicine sites that I like a lot. Uh, one is uh, just a short list of them might be healthykids.org, has some nice resources um, of all sorts. Um, one that I find a lot of my uh, parents enjoy is drgreen.com, that's G-R-E-E-N-E.com. Um, I think for young parents, Baby Center, uh, a site which parents might use during their pregnancy 
has some very nice postpartum or the first and second year resources about normal growth and development and health that parents can find very, very useful too. Um, and I think that's a great start. WebMD ain't so bad either, but um, I'll stop there just because I'm talking too much. No, you're certainly not, because it's really great information. So so wrap it up for us with two or three pearls sure. of your best wisdom on, you know, calling that on-call doc, what to yep. do if we feel uncomfortable with the advice that the on-call that's not our normal primary care pediatrician might give us, what you want parents to know about managing these things at home or going into the emergency room or our physician? So I, I tell my, my patients and my parents, um, something that I hope they take to heart. And I, I think, I hope this can be maybe shared here. And that is, you know, if, if it's two in the morning or if it's Saturday afternoon at three o'clock and the practice is shuttering or is closed for the day, you know, I think parents really want some reassurance and some peace of mind. So I, I think that if parents embark upon or reach out to talk with a clinician covering for the practice and they have that conversation over the phone, the, the, really the goal, the mutual goal for everyone, the, the provider included, is to really make sure that their questions are answered, that their goals are met, and they have a clear understanding of what the next steps are. I can certainly say I'm as guilty as the next person sometimes into falling into jargon or lingo. So if parents feel confused or if we just kind of get into our own heads too much and are talking gobbledygook or, or really aren't being clear, I urge parents really to, to press on and to ask, to, to ask us to clarify what we're saying and then at the end, to really sign off and be, be cool with, with the plan that was presented and make sure that there's clear steps of what to do if you need to escalate the level of care. When would I call back to practice? When should I come in, if at all, over the next few days? Why should I or when should I go to the ER? What would be the warning sign? And I think you can usually do that in a conversation between three and five minutes. Uh, I think that is a really good place to start. Um, and I would say if someone has some misgivings after they've hung up the phone, don't hesitate to call back. Great advice, Dr. Maypole. Thank you so much for being with us today. This is Boston Med Talks with Boston Medical Center. For more information, you can go to bmc.org. That's bmc.org. This is Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for listening.